I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apet. And I'm Jill Duggan. And this is Join the Dots. I'm an environmental economist. Sabina is an environmental scientist. Jill is an expert in climate and energy policy. We've spent our careers giving advice about the environment, and we know choices are never straightforward. Here in each show, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet, and our planet. Welcome to the latest episode of Join the Dots podcast. Today, we're going to talk about electric vehicles. Many governments around the world have taken on a target to get to net zero emissions by the middle of the century in order to avoid the worst climate change catastrophes. As part of achieving those targets, the UK, as with many other governments, has decided to set an end date for the sale of diesel and petrol cars. In the UK, that end date is 2030, with hybrid vehicles allowed to be sold until 2035. But many of us are now thinking, what does that mean for us? How can we afford those really expensive vehicles? How do we charge them? And what will that mean to our transport options? So today, we're going to talk to Ian Dickey, who has made that shift, to find out how he did it and what we can learn from the process. Ian, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Yes, hello. My name's Ian. I'm a director of FTEC. I've been working as an environmental economist in the UK for 20 years, studied economics degree, and before that had an interest in the environment and nature since I was a child. Yes. Excellent. A birdwatcher before an economist. You always say that, Ian. You can say it now. <laughs> <laughs> and someone who's done a spreadsheet about whether to buy and which electric vehicle to buy, I've heard. Ooh, I love a spreadsheet. It's a bit early in the morning, isn't it, Sabina? (laughs) Data. (laughs) And let's face it, many of us don't get round to a spreadsheet. Let's just unpack net zero and what that actually means. The main greenhouse gases are carbon dioxide, methane. So net zero means, firstly, we must try and reduce the emissions of those as close to zero as possible. And any residual emissions must be captured either through soil carbon tree growing or technical carbon capture or carbon capture and use, i.e. turning carbon dioxide into product. From the point of view of a household, those emissions and their effects are important. I'm concerned about that for my future and my children's future. But the exact definition of the target isn't that important. What's important is we have to cut drastically. And I know that and our household knows that. And so how government chooses to define net zero is important for them, but it's not really important to me as a household. So how much of our greenhouse gases are generated from road transport? And why has that been highlighted as an early or important part of reducing our emissions? For the UK, at least, the Climate Change Committee published what they call a carbon budget. And the latest one was published on uh, 9th of December this year, 2020. And they say that just over 20% of all carbon emissions in the UK is from road transport and third of that from cars. And just about 30% of the time we drive our cars for commuting or business. 
And if you look at historic emissions in the UK, you can see that the total emissions from transport has remained pretty constant. Even though there have been technological improvements, like cars getting more efficient and emitting less per mile they drive, we drive more. And in the last couple of years, we started to buy more and more of these very high-emitting SUVs. This has been really noticeable to me as an expat. When I first moved here, it was impressive how the cars were smaller and more efficient. And at least where we are now, people are driving the giant, ridiculous cars just like they did in California. And, and more and more in the cities as well. Yeah. Where, <laughs> like you can't actually even fit in the road. Yeah. The Chelsea tractors. Like you need a, a Range Rover to get to Tesco's. Alternative supermarkets are available. Um. <laughs> yes, it might be a Waitrose in that, that particular case. Um, when you look at elect- emissions from electricity generation, they're about a quarter of what they were 30 years ago. Why? Because in the UK, we've switched from fossil fuel electricity generation to much more renewable wind and solar and nuclear. That's impressive. Exactly. So this is why I was thinking sort of why electric vehicles have become one of the more pushed forward solutions for reducing emissions from transport is that the source of energy for electric cars is a lot cleaner than burning oil in the combustion engine while you're driving. So this won't be true for all countries. If you're getting your electricity from coal-fired power, you're simply moving the source of emissions from one place to another. Yes, that's right. All right, fair enough. They're only preferred if the electricity is cleaner than burning oil by the car. As a household, if you live in a country where most of the power comes from high-carbon sources, then solar panels might be a better investment than an electric vehicle. I'm lucky enough to have solar panels. And so the electric vehicle is the next big investment I could make to reduce my environmental impact. And actually, I can charge my car from the energy from the solar panels. So tell us a little bit more about the equations or the the spreadsheet you use to inform that decision. I mean, the first thing to say is I plan these things as you come to make these investments in life. Hopefully you can do it as you, you know, as you buy a new house and take a mortgage, you get money to invest in solar panels. As one vehicle comes to the end of its life, you invest in the next one. That's the efficient time to make the change. I'm very lucky to have, I guess, a stable position in life where I can make this kind of investment. I know my kids are going to be in the same school. I'm going to do the same job so I can actually go into a higher purchase agreement, um, which has a tax saving for the electric vehicle. And then in terms of which vehicle to look at, yeah, there were a number of factors I needed to weigh up. The family's getting bigger, so enough space in the back seat for kids that are growing tall, enough boot space for all our stuff, a high car because granny needs to be able to get in and out. And its range was important for us because we holiday around the UK. And then obviously balance those things against the cost. But during the months that I did the research, new vehicle models were coming into the market all the time. Can we have a screenshot of your spreadsheet to share? <laughs> I don't know. Not everybody works with spreadsheets. <laughs> How could they not? Kind of, It's kind of more a table with some lots of links in, but you can if you want. Yes, I'd like that. So, I mean, a big concern for me and others is the ability to charge the vehicle. So how did you address that for your situation? 
Yeah, well, I'm lucky enough to have a driveway, so I've had an electric vehicle charger installed. That costs nearly £1,000, and that includes the government grant to help with that cost of £350. Um, it was a slightly more complicated installation, probably because a slightly older house, and um, had to change some of the other wiring in the house, but actually made the whole thing safer, which is good. But I have a smart charger that can be programmed in summer to only use surplus energy from solar panels to charge the car. So that's one reason why it costs a little bit more. But obviously that'll save me money in the long term. So you don't pay for charging at all in that case? You generate the electricity in your solar panels and you use that energy to charge your car? Yeah. So in summer, if the battery is more than half full and you don't need it full instantly, then you set it to the most efficient setting. And only when there's surplus energy from the solar panels will it then be put into the vehicle. So let's talk about people that might not have a driveway. What are other solutions or other approaches and what infrastructure do we need to make it more accessible to those people? Um, well, at the end of the day, you just need a plug which sounds simple, but I think we have to think about that problem a bit more broadly because when you look at the space we give within our densely populated cities to vehicles, it's enormous. And yeah, we're talking about a big technological change to electric vehicles. We need to revise that. And a lot of investment went into the infrastructure that combustion engine cars need. And a lot of investment's going to be needed for the full-scale switch to electric vehicles. We're just at the start of that now, and so we need to grow the market so that there are more people who know how to install electric vehicle charging points, and then there'll be more innovations in those, and some of them will need to go under pavements. So we're just at the start of that curve, but all the pieces to do it are there. It's just a question of the, the will to do so, in, in my view. Particularly in a city like Bristol, it's the right size, it's got the space to do it. It's interesting, Ian. I mean, our roads are being ripped up right now to put in high-speed internet. And it seems to me that would have been a time to put in the infrastructure to start providing charging points and laybys or in village centers. I think we're starting to. So last summer, I was lucky enough to be on holiday in the west coast of Scotland, quite remote locations where we enjoy going as a family. And I took a couple of ferries between the mainland and Mull, at the quayside where you wait for the ferry, there were vehicle charging points in really tiny remote villages of a couple of hundred people. But actually, it's a very logical place to put a charging point because you always arrive for a ferry kind of at least half an hour beforehand because you don't want to miss it. So, yeah, you can charge for half an hour, um, which from a fast charging point is quite useful. It might give you, say, a quarter of your battery capacity back. So someone's really thought about that carefully. And also it's a symbolic thing. If I see that in remote places in Scotland, it gives me more confidence that I can go the sort of places I enjoy going with an electric vehicle. That's a good point. How far would I get on a half hour charge? Well, from the fastest chargers, yeah, I think you get about a quarter of your battery. And the car I was looking at, the range, well, they sell the range at about 280, but in, in practice, it's more like 240. So you'd be looking at, 60 miles from half an hour charge. Hmm. In any circumstances is that? Because one of the things I notice on my car is it tells me I've got 70 miles worth of petrol left. And quite often it's not 70 miles before it's down to a frightening level because it depends on where you're driving and the way you drive, doesn't it? Yeah, that, I mean, that's one thing that they say about driving electric vehicles is the computer in the car gives you a lot of information about your efficiency. And then actually that tells you in real time, you know, to accelerate less hard. 
when you don't need to, and it smooths out people's driving. We can tell people that, you know, I know that driving a combustion engine, but if you give people the information in real time, they can respond to it better. There's all these possibilities that new technologies give us, but we often focus on the negatives and worry about what might go wrong from any change. Can I go back to the charging point on that very uplifting point, Ian, <laughs> that you left us with? But um, I'm seeing more and more petrol stations installing electric chargers as well. And I presume there'll be a time in future, especially after this phasing out of new diesel and petrol cars, that more of those petrol stations will convert into electric charging points. And there are more and more of those in the sort of council car parks appearing as well. But I think there are examples in Amsterdam as well that apparently Total, the oil company, took a contract from the municipality to build up electric charging points for the council as opposed to building up new petrol stations. So that change will gradually happen. We will come back to your personal experience, but there's one thing that we said about banning diesel and petrol cars in the introduction. It is for new cars, isn't it? So you will still be allowed to use your old car even after 2030. It's production that's phased out, isn't it? It's sale that's phased out. So you could probably still build one and use it yourself (laughs) if you had the skills. But there's other policy measures that go with that. So the proposals that were actually due to come in pre-COVID in the centre of Bristol was to ban diesel cars from the few square miles of the city centre. So diesels would become a thing of the suburbs and countryside only. And I mean, obviously, one way around that is then to get a petrol car, a family size. But if you're going to switch vehicles, then that's the time to invest in an electric vehicle. And that also made me think, shouldn't I be driving something cleaner when that air pollution is affecting my children's health and all their classmates' health day to day uh, as they go to school in the city? Can you tell us a little bit more about the salary sacrifice scheme that you use to be able to get your car and who that's available to and how that works? So it's actually similar to the bike to work scheme that people might be more familiar with. So you can pay for the vehicle out of your salary before tax on a monthly basis. So the contract is to hire the vehicle for four years, paying a monthly amount. Now that brings my employer into the equation. So the financial agreement is through them and the car providing company. And they arrange for the money to be taken out of my salary before tax to pay for the vehicle. So there's a substantial tax saving to me, also a small tax saving to the employer on uh, employer's tax contributions and works out as a good deal to get a car that otherwise I'd have to be paying more upfront for. And that is actually very efficient because electric vehicles cost a lot less to run. So I think I'll be saving about 80 to 100 pounds a month on fuel. Um, And that's going obviously to paying that monthly amount for the hire. Did you have to put money up front? Did you have to put a deposit down in order to do this on a monthly rental? And what happens at the end of your four-year rental period? Yeah, so we pay three months worth of rentals as a deposit at the start. And then effectively, the last three months of the rental is free. And at the end of the four years, the normal thing is to hand the car back. I think there would be an option to buy it, but it's not usually very efficient. And then, yeah, I could look to get a new type of agreement like that. Family situation may be different in four years' time. Way children get to school, the the elderly relatives we care for may have changed. So until now, we've been one car and bicycles as a family. And we'll be two-car family for a while, but then we may switch back. 
Can you give us a what, what's the sort of ballpark that you're paying per month for the use of this vehicle? So the monthly cost is around three hundred and thirty pounds, and if you take then you know a saving of about eighty on fuel, then yeah, it becomes sort of around two hundred and fifty a month. And I know that's a lot less than a lot of people who have company cars of a family size. You know, will pay for their big SUV that I see other people dropping off their children at school from. Oh yes, you talked about cycling, Ian. I know that you cycle to the station and then take a train to London. On those days, you used to come to London for work. But I'll share a link on the website for how to choose an electric bike. Because loads of people like me over the lockdown period started cycling more and more, uh, which is fine because London is pretty flat, but Bristol isn't, is it? So if you want to switch to cycling more than driving your car, you might need a bit of help. And there's a nice article I found that tells you how to choose the best electric cycle. Is the cycle to work scheme still on? Yeah. You can put a link to that as well. So you can, in the same way, you can buy a bicycle with a loan from your work that is tax deductible. So how much has this equation changed during the time of COVID when we're all in lockdown and we're not really going anywhere as much? I mean, both the costs and the savings and the trade-offs shift some, don't they? They do a bit, or maybe just the uncertainty around them goes up. So we're still going to want to travel. I would find the idea of not being able to go out into the environment in the countryside and you know enjoy a bit of space very hard to deal with. So I, I will always want that freedom for myself and my family, and I think other people would too. But the technologies will change. So yeah, Bristol be very good to have more use of electric bikes because just those few hills it helps you deal with. My children could cycle to school during lockdown my oldest daughter cycled to meet her friends sort of four miles away across the city because the traffic was light but in the rush hour it just doesn't feel safe we've tried using the bus it's not reliable in the morning they get the bus home from school sometimes so we use it when it works and hopefully all those things will change for the better so they can use the bus more or there's safe places they could use an electric bike but we have to see that change across society and I'm not going to wait for that. I want to be part of the start of that change. You know, I must say it's not unique to cities, these situations. I mean, we live in a village and there's one stretch of road that is so dangerous. We didn't allow our kids to cycle the two miles, which killed me. And buses didn't come often in the winter. So we'd have to scoop the kids up and drive them to town anyway. So, yeah, there are many parts of this equation. If we want people to do more public transport, it needs to be more reliable and actually more frequent as well. Ian, I'm interested in whether your friends, neighbours, relatives have, uh, have taken an interest in your choice here and whether that's had any influence on others. I think it is having an influence, but I think it's the sort of thing they don't always want to admit. So, yeah, I've had a few conversations with people, but... I do know other dads my age and they're all quite proud of their BMW and they've talked to their friends about which car they've got through their job. I feel that's a real shame that they're investing all that money in something that's damaging the air and the planet. But the negative messages probably aren't going to get through to them. There has to be a positive message and me having an electric car can be part of that. And you can make innovation and change a real positive thing. 
I remember my dad said to me he took a job in computing in the 70s and his dad thought it was a bit risky because it was a new technology. Do you want to be part of that? And I want to set the example to my children that, yeah, you can take on those innovations and make them a success and, and actually to other people too. Not just other dads, but my children's friends who go, oh, you've got an electric charger mm. when they see it on the driveway and, oh, you'll get an electric car. And they'll talk to their parents. We know um, Pester Power works. I have noticed the statistics that a lot of younger people are not buying or planning on buying cars. So, uh, you know, another alternative is car sharing and whether that can also be an electric fleet. Do you have thoughts on that? Well, it would seem to me that they're ideal for a fleet of cars because you have then people looking after the cars, managing when they're being charged, but you need a high enough number of people to be using them then to support the this infrastructure and this and staff to look after those cars. So if you have a carpool of only one or two vehicles and no one takes care of them, then there's a risk that when you go to use it, it's not in good condition. But uh, an ideal situation would be in our suburb, there's enough people definitely to support a carpool. And so we could be a one car household and you know rely on the carpool when we needed something something else. And yes, as you say, you know, I think the more and more people make the switch, the more efficient and worthwhile that kind of sharing schemes will become. I saw something that even as early as 2012, there was a trial of an electric vehicle share in one of the London boroughs, but the company had to pull out because there wasn't enough demand. But it's not a permanent pull out. It's we will come back when more people are doing this. Yeah. And the range of the vehicles has gone up so much mm. since then and, and will continue to improve, I'm sure. And I've looked at that. So we go on holiday to Scotland, as I mentioned, and I've thought about doing that drive, you know, with a range of 250 miles. But actually, if you're traveling as a family, you know, that's over three hours driving and we can't drive that long in a car without needing a proper brake. So you just have to plan those brakes to charge it. So I don't think it'll really change the way we make those kind of journeys. And that's the longest journey you might make in the UK. So that's perfectly feasible. I think Lyft and Uber in the US have committed to going all electric. I think Lyft started and Uber followed suit. Mm-hmm. Well, that should also create a fleet of secondhand cars eventually for those that, you know, find getting a new electric vehicle unobtainable. Well, yeah, I mean, the family car we have now, we bought when it was two years old. And I could tell from the documents that it had been a company car for someone. And that's quite a typical way that new cars come onto the market as company cars and then become secondhand cars for people like me. I'm now in a lucky enough position to be able to invest in renting a new electric vehicle. So then that will become a secondhand vehicle in the market. And enough people do that, it'll build up the fleet of secondhand cars, become a realistic choice. That'll support demand for the infrastructure. And that's a virtuous circle. And also, I I should mention, I've seen the Amazon Prime delivery vans around Bristol are a lot of them electric vans now. So, you know, it's changing at that scale of vehicle as well, which is something that the technology is now enabling. You said the technology is improving rapidly, and we know that battery technology is, is changing very quickly. And so for those of us who might not be in a position to rent a vehicle, when's going to be the right time? Does your spreadsheet kind of deal with that? It's very difficult to make a big investment at a time of rapidly changing technology because you risk being left with a stranded asset. Well, I'd make these investments as I come to spend money on these things anyway. So if your car's getting old and you're 
going to invest in the next one, that's the time to get to an electric vehicle. The next thing I want to do after an electric vehicle is to electrify more of my house instead of using gas for cooking. But if our kitchen was worn out and needed replacing, I might have done electric kitchen before electric vehicle. So it depends where you are, your position in life and what it is that you need to spend money on to replace. Yeah, we went for an induction hob quite some time ago and I would never go back to gas. It's wonderful once you have a decent one. I hope you have a spreadsheet about your induction hob because then we can swap. <laughs> I can make you one. <laughs> well, that's the next device I need. So I just went for the most expensive on my induction hob and it's wonderful. I always go for a second most expensive. <laughs> my husband wanted an induction hob and I did not want to give up some of my cookware that was not induction specific because it has to be ferromagnetic. It has to have iron in it. But actually, now we have two induction burners and two conventional burners. And I wish we had four induction. They're so efficient. They're so beautiful. And really, most of our cookware is cast iron anyway. When I move on from making muffins every now and then, I will consider learning about induction ovens. We'll have to do another episode. Yeah. That's the only way I'm learning about stuff. <laughs> So, Ed, Jay, we've talked about a lot of advantages, but, mm -hmm. you know, we like to talk about life cycle assessment. And there are some concerns about the batteries mm -hmm. and the materials used in them, which are not unique to electric vehicles, but they're large batteries. Mm -hmm. What did you find out about that? Yes, that's right. Well, a couple of important things that, that you mentioned, Sabina, is one is that when you're comparing anything you want to buy you want to compare their impacts throughout their life cycle so whilst it's pretty established that electric vehicles emit much less than petrol or diesel driven cars during their use um, they obviously have different impacts during their production and one of the biggest impacts during the life cycle of an electric vehicle is the making of the battery and it does use a lot of minerals like more familiar ones like aluminium nickel but the probably the less heard of ones like cobalt graphite manganese and possibly the newest of the minerals that came to our vocabulary lithium ions and as you say these are not just used for batteries in cars but they are used in our smartphones tablets laptops as well and there's a growing conversation about the negative impacts of mining these minerals For example, I didn't know how lithium was mined, but it's mined by, well, one of the ways it's mined is by digging deep holes in the ground and taking what they call brine, which is basically water with lots of minerals in it, and then piling that up on the surface and letting it evaporate over several weeks, if not months. And what you're left is a mixture of lots of minerals, and then you separate them and get the mix of minerals that I listed. Apparently, majority of the production is done in this triangle of Chile, Argentina and Bolivia in Latin America, which happens to be salt flats as well. So with very little water. So there are impacts like from all mining operations. There's likely to be leaking this mix of chemicals into soil, into groundwater that could affect downstream human populations and animals. 
and lots of sort of emissions during the operation of the mining, obviously, and the health risks to workers and social conditions, the living conditions of workers, etc. These are real concerns that we need to be aware of. But electric vehicles are not alone in creating impacts. We also need to look at the alternatives. What are the impacts of extracting the oil that we burn in the combustion engines? As you point out, we're quite used to them. You hear a lot about the impacts of oil when we have a disaster, like a major oil spill or the Deepwater Horizon disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. But there is constant leakage from oil extraction and transport. There are I think tens of thousands, if not more, contaminated sites from leaky fuel tanks near petrol stations. There's leakage on roads, there's runoff and dripping. The petroleum industry has a huge environmental impact, not to mention, of course, the social impacts and the fact that control and access to oil has dominated geopolitics and many wars in modern history. We just are so accustomed to these things that they're part of the background. So, Ian, did you think about these wider environmental impacts of electric versus combustion cars when you were comparing your choices? Yeah, I was conscious of them. I'm aware that electric vehicles aren't without their own environmental impacts, but you have to compare that to what they're replacing. So, as you said, extraction of oil is a major negative impact around the world. And while we're getting an electric vehicle, we're planning to take a, another older vehicle off the road to retire granny's car. And yeah, we can't let that affect our household choice too much. But what I would like is more uh, of those choices as part of the transport system. So better routes for my children to be able to cycle or maybe in the future use e-scooters. Bristol currently has a trial of e-scooters around the city. And again, if there were safe routes to use them on, then I think it's something that my family could make use of. So, I mean, for me, what would be nice with more electric cars is less of that constant roar of motor vehicles. I mean, electric cars are much quieter, but there's a dark side to that as well, isn't there? There is. So actually, my um, father-in-law trained guide dogs. And so guide dogs is a charity we still have a connection to as a family. And my children told me that electric vehicles can't be too quiet because guide dogs can't hear them. And more generally, you know, people rely on sound for safety around the roads. So they do still make some noise because noise comes from wind resistance and tire noise. Uh, but also there's some of the electric vehicles make a sound so people know they're there uh, and to keep things safer. So electric vehicles aren't the solution for everybody. Not everybody has the money or the space or the right circumstances to use an electric vehicle. So there are other choices. And Sabina, maybe you can just go through the hierarchy of, of what's available and what we ought to be thinking about. I think when one talks about transport, one can use roughly but not exactly an example in the waste hierarchy, which has us prioritise reduction and reuse, then repurposing, then recycling, and then waste or disposal. And the big lesson there is we often focus on recycling, but the biggest impact is reduction of our travel, whether that is taking fewer trips, working from home, or sharing rides, sharing our vehicles, sharing rides. Reduction is an important part of the hierarchy. 
Included in sharing and reduction would be public transport because you can get a lot more people in buses and trains and there needs to be extensive investment in low impact public transport that's reliable and usable for the general public because nobody will stop driving their cars if they can't get where they want when they want. Below that, one wants to think about more sustainable driving. And then we are talking about electric vehicles, better batteries, considering the fuel sources. And only when we have none of those options should we be considering our petrol vehicle. I'll hang on to my petrol vehicle until I have access to charging. So we need to make sure that there's infrastructure across the board so that all these options are available. As we exit the time of COVID, that we should continue to encourage working from home, cycling, sharing when it's safe. One thing we experienced, more people who could work from home have worked from home since March. And one thing to continue after the pandemic ends, at least to cut down what we now can call unnecessary business trips. Because yeah. a lot of the travel, not just on the road transport, but flying as well, is business traveling. It's causing many of us to rethink the way in which we work and the need, whether we need to commute and how we work with other people and whether we work locally, even if we don't work at home. I, you know, our remote office is a local remote office yeah. so that we cut down on commuting. I think the conferences and meetings really questioning when we need face-to-face and making sure that that's highly productive and meaningful rather than just something we do because it's part of the status of our jobs. And we have seen actually improvements in public transport fleets in the cities because, you know, you've got more and more buses saying this bus is run on, you know, it's a green bus or it's run on hydrogen, which is something we haven't talked about in this episode, but we should cover in a future one about using hydrogen as a fuel. And I think that's quite a good sign as well, sort of going back to, Ian, what you were saying about learning from each other. Because I remember the first time I saw a bus with that on the side, I thought, well, maybe cars could switch as well. But it's not the same in rural areas. We don't even have enough buses in rural areas, let alone green ones. We want, as I said, retired granny's car, but she needs lifts to hospital and haircuts are the two vital things in her life. One reason to have two cars is to be able to do that. And then there have been times when we've supported her more and she said, oh, maybe I don't need a car. And if it comes from her, it's much better than us imposing it on her which in general is about how you you know need to make these changes. You need to give people a positive option. When you present change, a lot of humans will see the potential downsides and be scared of them. But if you can present the positives and new options, like salary sacrifices, a new financing option makes it accessible to me. But as I said, I'm lucky to be in a position at work where that can work for me. So we need those kind of financial solutions that work for other people. And, you know, is there a tax break that can encourage workmen to switch their vans to electric? That's an even bigger upfront investment because it's a bigger electric vehicle. But equally, you know, it's part of their capital that they work from. They spend a lot of money on fuel. So it might be just a question of their spending being different over time to get use of that kind of vehicle. I'm sure we're clever enough as a society to do these things, but the changes just can't happen fast enough. Mm. 
The reason it's so much more expensive to have an electric car rather than a petrol car is because society and our economy allow us to externalize the impacts, the negatives of those choices. There's a massive subsidy in roads, but we don't pay for the damage our petroleum use causes. That's been another fascinating episode where I've learned a lot. So Ian, before we end, is there anything, any thought that you'd like to leave us with? The positive thing for me about it is the example it sets to my kids. You know, what will they remember about the world changing from when they were growing up? They remember seeing Greta Thunberg speak in Bristol in 2019. They'll remember, obviously, the big events in life. But one of the things they'll remember is when we were little, we had combustion engine cars and then we switched to having an electric vehicle. Yeah, that makes me feel good as a parent. So today we've been looking at electric vehicles. Many governments around the world have decided that we should stop being able to buy petrol and diesel cars from a point in the future. And in the UK, that point has been set at 2030. And that's because many governments recognise that in order to minimise the impacts of climate change, we really do need to reduce the greenhouse gases that we as societies are emitting and try and get to a net zero position on greenhouse gases by the middle of the century. In our discussion today, we have recognised that actually there are lots of things we can do to reduce emissions from transport, and some of those are to reduce our use of transport by walking, by cycling, by using public transport, sharing vehicles where that's possible, and we're thinking about COVID here as well, by changing the way we live and work. And one of the things that COVID may do to many of us in the future is require us to use less transport in the future. And then if we still do need to use our own vehicle, we need to consider buying electric. Um, and I think the advice that we've got from Ian, who's actually pr produced a spreadsheet, which I hope we're going to be able to share on the website. First of all, when should you buy an electric vehicle? Well, maybe it's when you would buy a new vehicle anyway and not before. And that there will be different considerations depending on your lifestyle as to what sort of vehicle you should buy we did talk about some of the concerns about battery technology and how damaging mining of lithium is, but we also recognise that the oil technology that we've been dependent on for the last 100 years is also immensely damaging, both environmentally and also geopolitically. We only have to look at the last 20 years to recognise the truth in that. So this is moving into a new era. There are lots of things to consider as we make these choices. But I think one of the things we can all agree on is, you know, stop and think before we use any transport and think about how we can reduce our emissions. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the rest of the team, Tara Uyghur on podcast production and Neil McEwen on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com.